uh, we're back today for more from the book of Romans. Chapter 13 is where we come today. And, and I had the opportunity to, to answer all of your questions. Your questions about the legitimacy of the American Revolution, the proper Christian response to COVID-era regulations, past, potentially future, and exactly how believers are to think about our government. <laughs> We're going to get to the bottom of it all, but it will take more than one Sunday to do that. Uh, for today, let's get started by addressing from God's Word the role and function of civil government, and we begin by reading the first six verses of this chapter. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So, I want to, uh, I want to break up our discussion of this passage in this way. We're going to start by looking at what Scripture says about civil government, and then mostly next time we're going to consider how Christians are to relate to this government. Now, note that there are various spheres of human interaction. There is the family. There is the church. There is the business. There is the uh, club, and all of these have forms of government. For our purposes today, we are looking at civic government, okay? And we begin by asking why we need government or what government is for, and our passage points us in a certain direction when it tells us that government exists to create fear in evil doers, to avenge criminals. All right, what is the positive end of that activity. Presumably, it is to have an ordered, peaceful society. Governing authorities are necessary because of human sinfulness and the difficulty we have living together as essentially self-centered creatures. Now, I ask you, do you like government? Do you wake up in the morning thinking, isn't it wonderful that we have a federal government? Isn't it tremendous that we have a state government and a local government? These, uh, I'm guessing you probably don't often wake up delighting in these things. These are oftentimes more likely to be the objects of our complaining. We don't like the burdens they put 
upon us. But if we think more deeply about it, we realize that government is really a gift. It is important to our happiness, even though it certainly is what you would call a mixed blessing. In 98% of cases, however, government is better than anarchy. Now, that word anarchy refers to a state of no government. You think of the Wild West, which we romanticize in our movies, but as I have observed it in film, it looks to be a very unsafe kind of situation, if you know what I mean. People in those films are always getting robbed and shot and scalped without civil government. We live under the law of the jungle where the most powerful and the most ruthless have their way, and that is very much not good. Government is more often than not a big problem, but no government is much worse as we think about what a government is to do, it is good to understand that uh, it walks a fine line between securing personal freedom on the one hand and maintaining order on the other. There's a real tension that exists between those two. I'm looking at all our school teachers right over here in the school teacher section, and you know what that's about. You want to maintain order without having too much, you know, come down too hard on. There, there's a tension that exists between these values. If the king allows free speech, but someone uses that speech to stir up the social or stir up a revolution, the social order is at risk. If freedom of religion is allowed, but one religion requires the destruction of other religions, then violence will ensue. What is a king to do? The historian Will Durant writes this, when liberty destroys order, the hunger for order will destroy liberty. We see this happen all the time. I think of it again as the balance between security and freedom. When you go to the airport, for example, <laughs> what are you not free to do? <laughs> You're not free to bring water <laughs> through the line, are you? No, no. You're not free to bring a decent-sized bottle of shampoo. Now, kids, these things were actually fine to do 30 years ago. But something happened, didn't it? Uh, even in, and that, that thing that happened changed a great deal. The balance between freedom and security. Uh, even in America, and I say even in America, because in the founding of our nation, there was a bias toward liberty. The Constitution, signed today in what year? 1787. <laughs> the Constitution was written to keep government from going too far in the direction of control and security and order. It was to enchain the government in order to free the people. But the early days of our nation's founding, if you're familiar with the debates, it was marked by the same old conflict. Some argued for a strong national government, largely for the purpose of 
the common defense, a national defense. And that's a, that's a valid concern. Others argued for a minimal federal government, largely for the protection of personal liberty, another valid concern. Thomas Jefferson was of the latter school. He wrote that the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. And a government, government is a force for order, which order we value until, <laughs> until it infringes on our personal freedom, which it invariably does and invariably will do by means of taxation and many other ways. So when the people of Israel appealed to Samuel the prophet to establish a more centralized government under a king, here is what the prophet had to say to them, 1 Samuel 8. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipments for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. There's more. Next slide. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. I think we have one more verse. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. Now, now we read that uh, nowadays and chuckle. We've seen this play out for two millennium, haven't we, of recorded history. We want order. We want security, understandably, but in securing those things, we lose freedom and property, which we also tend to value. Now, in 1 Samuel, God gave the people their king, and God led them to Saul. That was tall Saul. Scripture says God establishes the ruling authorities, the good kings and the not-so-good kings, and there were plenty more of the latter, the Davids and the Ahab. Sometimes the Lord puts a person in power in order to bless a people, and at other times, He judges a people by whom He places in office. They get in those positions by various means as we perceive it. They're elected. Someone's assassinated. Uh, there's war. There's inheritance. There's appointment. Some ways to power may strike us as more legitimate, more agreeable than others, but Scripture doesn't really make an issue of the means God uses. It just says that they were placed in those positions by a sovereign God. So that is verse 1 of Romans 13. Uh, it is also, by the way, the book of Daniel some of you are starting a study in the book of Daniel. It makes the point there that God raises up and brings down monarchs and their kingdoms. Daniel says this, chapter 2, verse 20, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. Even Jesus spoke of this reality in the context of his trial. If you'll remember, remember that, the Roman-appointed governor Pontius Pilate has the power of life and death, 
uh, over Jesus, so it appears. But in the trial of Jesus, who was the fearful one? <laughs> Why, that would be Pilate, the governor. Uh, in John 19, Pilate hears from his accusers that Jesus, the prisoner, claimed to be the Son of God. And then we read this, uh, John 19, 8, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Even more, he was afraid. Now he's even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have, go back, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So this understanding that civil powers uh, are in their positions by the choice of God, it's a key factor in how we are to relate to them, says Paul. It is also a critical consideration for the governing authorities. They, more than anybody, need to grasp how they got into power and to whom they are responsible. We will say more about that later, but let's plot on through our passage to see what civil government is to be about. And we look at verse 3, where it says, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Now, what is suggested there? Think with me. What is suggested there? Evil persons who lack the constraints of conscience and the constraints of love require us to provide an external motivation to good behavior, which we call punishment. Parents do this with their children. Teachers do this with their students. Coaches do this with their players. Yeah. Uh, we set forth consequences for bad choices and bad behavior, which are intended to limit and reduce such bad behavior. We want the citizenry to be rightly afraid of the power that we invest in our justice system from the governor to the policeman. And this implies that there will be punishments that are brought to bear against wrongdoers. There will be fines. There will be prison sentences. There will be restitution. There might be whippings or even death. And on that last point, the Bible is very clear that capital punishment is Itself, has the endorsement of God. We read that in Genesis chapter 9. We read it repeatedly in, in the Mosaic Code for the nation of Israel, where we find over 20 crimes which merit the death penalty. We read it here as well, because in verse 4, it says of the civil government, it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. It does not bear the sword. It does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, the word translated in that verse as sword here, there were several types of sword in those days. This, has, this is the word used for the Roman short sword. That's the one the soldier would pull out to end the life 
of a combatant. It was not a defensive weapon. It was a life-ending device. And God, who is our ultimate judge, our supreme ruler, says he has given this power to the state, to the civil magistrate. And when you think about that, you should say, wow. <laughs> I'm glad some of you are thinking about that. I mean, that, that's a big, big deal. Your elders here at church, we, we can keep you from the Lord's table. Your coach, he can put you on the end of the bench. Your teacher can send you to the principal's office. But the civil authority can take your life if your offense is deemed to warrant that. Now, as an interesting aside... We here in the Pittsburgh area are waiting, last I knew, for the final verdict on the Tree of Life case. A man kills 11 and is tried in a federal court. Somebody may understand how all this works between state and federal. I don't, but he's being tried in a federal court. The federal government does allow for the death penalty, although our current president campaigned against the death penalty. Nevertheless, his Justice Department is seeking it in this case. Death is more likely for the murderer under the federal jurisdiction than under Pennsylvania justice because no one has been put to death in our commonwealth in this century. Biblically speaking, there is no question that a case as clear and as flagrant as this one suggests that the ultimate penalty is in order. So, this is what government is to do. And I, I remind you that Romans 13 follows what? Not, not a tricky question. Romans 13 follows Romans 12. Two weeks ago, we looked at the end of Romans 12, where we are warned not to seek our own vengeance. We as individuals are not to take the law into our own hands. We're not to form justice squads, but the civil authorities are not only allowed to do so, that is their very job. The government pursues justice, which allows us as individuals and us as a church to focus on showing mercy. And that doesn't mean we stand in the way of the government doing its job, but it does mean that our personal lives, in our personal lives, mercy, not vengeance, is the rule. So we need the state to punish offenders. And when it fails to do its job, who suffers? Well, of course, we all do. You see videos now, it seems like every week or so, of looters going into a store somewhere, just helping themselves, smashing the windows and taking whatever they seem to want with, uh, with no consequences for the looters. But who pays for that type of anarchy? Who pays? We all do. Social order breaks down. Personal responsibility becomes a mockery. It's an old Jewish proverb that says, uh, mercy to the cruel is cruelty to the merciful. Mercy to the cruel is 
cruelty to the merciful. That's why we need the state to follow its God-given job description and use that sword, which represents its power to punish. Now, hey, is there a problem with this approach? Is there a downside to having an empowered government with deadly weapons? (laughs) Well, Obviously and absolutely there is. There's no perfect solution to this sin problem, and sin always makes life complicated. When we empower governors, we are empowering sinners, proud, self-interested persons who will abuse that power. There is uh, much we can do to reduce the abuse. You can reduce it, but you will never eliminate it until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. So Paul, who wrote this to us about the legitimate deadly power of the state, Paul was ultimately killed by that state he tells us to obey. As was his Lord. So yeah, There is an enormous downside to giving the power of the sword to sinners. But anarchy, almost always worse. Now, one of the sad results of giving the state this kind of power is that the state becomes a major competitor with God himself. I mean, uh, by this, that, that people are going to be prone to worship and honor and obey that person or that power that can end their lives. William Fremantle wrote this, government has the power of life and death over our persons, hence it calls forth a worship more complete than any other. And some have called this statism, and if you look around at our world, if you look at history, you see how billions look to the state in the very way that Scripture says we are to look to our God, the state or God exist to protect, they exist to provide, they exist to grant rights, to give justice. To whom will you look, Christian? Some of our founders in this nation pointed us to heaven, didn't they? We are endowed with rights by whom? We are endowed by our Creator, is what it says. Our coins remind us where to put our Trust. I noticed in Georgia last week that the police cars all had, in God we trust, on them. Interesting. But so many other realities of life in human society will serve to draw your heart away from God to the powers that are inherent in civil government. This is why our founders also were adamantly concerned to limit the size and the scope of the government, at least the federal government. In part, they wanted to secure devotion to God, as did the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 146 and verse 3, do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. And all God's people said, amen to that. We want to finish today with this emphasis. The civil authorities are in place to serve God. What does verse 4 say the state is? Read it out loud with me. It is a minister of God to you for good. Now, New Living Translation has a little different twist. New Living Translation. You have a New Living Translation. 
Linda, we got another one? NLT? We don't have the NLT? There we go. The authorities are God's servants. Now, our passage says this in six verses three times. Three times. Three times. <laughs> what does this say about the responsibility of the state? It is not primarily to the people, but to God. You ever hear politicians say things that really bother you? <laughs> That's just a funny question. Uh, I, mean, I hear politicians say routinely things that grate on me, and one of them is this. I, I'm responsible to the people of our state. I answer to the voters. And yeah, I get that to a point, but it is better to realize you are serving God, not the voters. It's fine to listen to your people in your district. Listen away. Learn what they're thinking. But there's something better than that, more important than that. Better find out what God thinks, what God says. Deuteronomy talks about the duties of the king of Israel. Look at uh, this passage, chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. You got that? That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Does that say that the ruler is supposed to govern according to the word of God? Does it say that? I think it does. And does it not require that someone with power then learn that word? Why, I think it does. The state is to enforce the law which can only come ultimately from God. But anti-Christian states will see themselves, not God, as the source of law and the source of power. And then they require us to treat them as ultimate in opposition to God. So what does this suggest about the relationship then between government and religion? They are inseparable. I don't offer that as a preference, but as a simple observation. They just are inseparable. But let's define the word religion. If by religion you mean a certain set of rituals and ceremonies, that's, certainly you can have a government separated from rituals and ceremonies. But if you mean a set of beliefs, a set of practices, related to God and the spiritual world, then no government can be separated from that and understand by that definition who is religious. Got to think with me these last few minutes. Who is religious by that definition? Everybody is religious. Everyone. Even the atheist has some set of beliefs and practices related to God. But because the word religion brings a lot of baggage with it, I prefer to use the word worldview 
Surely you can understand that everyone has a certain view of the world, a certain set of beliefs about what is real, about what is true, about what is right, about what is wrong. Does that impact one's view of governing? Well, of course. (laughs) The notion then of a government that is non-religious, that's pure fantasy. The notion of a government that relates in identical fashion to our religions, that's right there with Never Never Land. I mean, you just think about it for a few minutes. The most basic responsibility of a government like ours is to provide for the common defense. But that is done with tax money taken in part from pacifists, right? From people whose religion is principally opposed to the military and to defense. So the very existence of a government is going to offend some religions, and it will support other religions. But that, that's just one issue. What are the others? Think of this year's news. The most important things, most everything impinges on ultimate beliefs about religion. Church historian Martin Marty put it to reporters one time, what issue in today's world is not religious? They all have a clearly religious element. What we believe about God and about truth and about man and ultimate reality, it affects everything about us as individuals and as a people. Someone's values, someone's morals, yes, someone's religion will shape your laws. And when people in power, when people in power, and next Sunday, I will argue that includes us. When people in power understand who they are truly serving, they will look to God for the answers he provides in his word because they are, according to Romans 13, brothers and sisters, the ministers and the servants of God. Next Sunday, we go deeper into what this means for how you and I live, for the hard choices we may need to make in a society that seems to be running away from the ways of God. I ran into this on social uh, media this week, and it was sort of timely for this message. This post says this, Facebook post, I saw several people put it out there, whatever happens next, do not comply. Well, we'll see how that sentiment lines up with Scripture. For now, I want to close with a proposition I expect we will all agree on. How about that? We must pray. We must pray. Our prayers must accompany our compliance to the government and even more so our occasional non-compliance. We pray for God to place in power conscientious, just leaders. We pray for them once they are in the office that they will not be drawn away that they will discern the will of God, care about that will, and that their plans, which accord with God's plans, will prosper to the flourishing of all. And so I end the day with 1 Timothy 2. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Let's pray.
And so, Lord, we do call on you as we have faced our vulnerability. We're very vulnerable where there is no government. We're vulnerable still where there is government, where there are powerful people with weapons that are greater than what we might possess. And, Lord, they are often all about their own peculiar interest. Some are corrupt. Some are confused. Some you graciously have given us who lead us wisely. And we pray for all who are in power on this day, whether we voted for them or not, that you, O oh God, would use them to advance justice, advance righteousness, freedom, and prosperity in our day and our land. We pray that you would do that for us here in this country, for brothers and sisters who are in other regimes around the world. Mercifully grant us, Lord, leaders, rulers, people with power who perceive what their role is for and who are responsible in their hearts to you. Give us hearts to wake up each day thankful for our government and also prayerful for it. Thank you for the privilege we have of shaping it, influencing it to some degree. We pray we would be faithful to steward that, and we rejoice in the leverage we have as those who are invited to enter boldly into your presence, which we do now in Jesus' name, beseeching you for these mercies. Amen.